0: Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. She shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I I want you to imagine with me that you own a vineyard. Maybe that's not your dream job. So pretend you have people who work for you, right? You got the nice business office with the corner, you could overlook the vineyard, but you own a vineyard. You gotta keep a careful eye on your vineyard. Most of your workers are dishonest people. Uh, The world is filled with those trying to get their own and no one really is fully willing to be vulnerable to, to say what they think because everyone's trying to take advantage of everybody else. They always gotta be a little guarded. I guess that's the way it is, isn't it, normally? It was like that, only maybe worse. And you're out one day just inspecting the crop, looking at the grapes, because, you know, you got to do that, even if you're not going to till the soil yourself. Maybe you're tilling the soil yourself, though. That's fun. Okay, you're out there digging in the soil, and smack, bam, boom, there is something that is unbelievable. Darkness, light, I don't know what. But you hear a voice, and this voice comes out of heaven And it says to you these kinds of things I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence, and I will destroy them. So make a box, and I will establish my alliance with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring in, two by two, male and female, birds, creeping things, and so forth. And you wake up, or you have it pass, or I don't know what happened, just shake it off. Got grapes in your hand? Maybe a knife in your hand? I think I might be crazy. Be what I would think. And the craziest part, he said, take your sons, and you don't have any. And you can't. You're 500 years old, and people start having kids in their 60s usually. Your wife hasn't had any kids. It's a rare condition. They call it barrenness. You don't know what to make of it, but how can you build a box and take those kids on the box? Uh, you must be crazy. And then your wife conceives and has not one but three. In order, I don't know. Over a couple of years, I don't know. But between the vision Noah gets and the hundred years it takes to build the ark and the flood come, those three boys are born after the vision and grow up with their father as the only Christians left on earth. Four men, four women, building a building larger than a football field. To carry a zoo. But get that it all starts with the miraculous birth to a faithful couple to bring about salvation from what otherwise would be destruction to all. And see the echo Abraham, Moses, right? all the way down, Samuel. It just keeps going, right? Uh, so, see that here. In Noah's story, as we begin to talk about building an ark as uh, an archetype, (laughs) not with the same word ark. Let's just deal with the word ark first. It does mean box. It doesn't get used much in the Old Testament, but it is related to the words that you know as ark, which is the, the box that went through the flood, and then the box that they covered with gold and threw the blood on for the temple sacrifices. But the root of the word, you know, theologians argue about it. We don't really know. So I I just like sticking with box. It it makes sense. I mean, does that mean that Noah's Ark didn't have like a roof on it or a prow? I don't know. Um, But the dimensions are given to be a a giant rectangle, a giant box. And so in any case, that's the word ark. Archetype is about a different word, ark. It's a Greek word, like archangel, right? Uh, Which isn't about a box. It's about being like the top. Like the alpha, the high, the big, right? Um, And then the type, you might think of typing as what you do on a computer, right? Or on the screen. You're, You're typing. Well, that word is there because what you're doing is you're putting an image that is different from other images that lets you very quickly tell the difference in a place. So you have types of things in your spice cabinet, right? And you find them by their type. Just as you would type letters uh, into a computer. So uh, an archetype, then, is like a really big category, a really big kind. And this is not only going to apply to going two by two and with the seven holy ones onto the, the boat with actual Hebrew zoology, which is really fascinating stuff, but has to first do with the archetype, the the universal symbol of the woman who conceives the seed, who saves us from our sin, that's the first type, so that the ark is really not a boat, but the body of Jesus. That's what ferries us across death's raging flood, is the flesh and blood of the God-man who died and could not stay dead. The river sticks and every other deep abyss of the grave had no hold on him. So, he's the ark. And Christianity is everybody who gets inside that boat, Jesus' body. And wouldn't you know, 1 Peter 3.21 not only mentions the flood, but tells you the way to get into the boat is to get baptized. You're baptized, you're in the boat with Jesus. He is the boat. We're going through the flood of this age and the fire which is to come. And the fire shall only purify and strengthen you now, while the rest of the world is going to burn in its corruption. That's an archetype right there. That's a powerful symbol, all right? Now, what I want us to do with that symbol that is ultimately about Jesus is to recognize that because it's ultimately about Jesus, it's about everything else, too. Jesus is the author and creator of all of it, and so he builds into all of it reflections of himself. That's why all of his ancestors have these miraculous birth stories. He's so powerful that they couldn't be his ancestors without kind of looking like him in ways we can't even imagine, right? Supernatural ways. All right, so then the ark, as a boat going through a destructive force, is a symbol for any type of survival scenario wherein you need God to save you. And the early church and the medieval church and the modern church, wherein we haven't forgotten our history, we therefore have always built our sanctuaries our places of worship are holy places to look like boats. And I don't know if everyone's, everyone's done this to you before, but you know, kind of turn yourself upside down and then look at the ceiling. <laughs> Just a little bit, right? Like this. And, and doesn't it look like the bottom of a boat? Yeah? It, it is. That's how they did it on purpose to make it look that way, to remind you that this is a ship. It's not a spaceship. It's not a seafaring ship. It's a going through the end of the world ship. And it really doesn't need the walls. The walls are there as a picture to remind you that the real ark, the real boat is the body of Jesus we're about to eat together. Yeah? And so we are here kept safe in the covenant of his super archetype. And to recognize then, to build an ark. If God if God wants you to build an ark today, and he does, I promise you that, uh, it, well, one of the arks you're going to build, and probably the most important one for your kids is your local congregation. Well, St. Paul Lutheran Church for us here. This boat is not just about you or me, right? It's about generations of those seeking the word of God in a world that's trying to take that word of God away from them. But building your congregation as an ark, which I want to invite you to to think of this place as a place for you to help build, uh, that's only going to be something that inspires you if your congregation is, in fact, a sanctuary. If you, in fact, Want to be here, which is one of the weirdest things about being a pastor. Um, not only do I experience, you know, people who don't want to be at church, who don't want to sing, but then want to be in charge of things like church and music. It's the weirdest thing ever. Um, and, and then uh, on top of that, I am in the midst of it so much that I've come to places where I don't want to be at church. And I think, I think that's weird. Actually, no. Um, I don't. I don't want you to repent. Like, let's all get on the ground and moan about it. But I, I mean, like. Take a moment and think about this place. Why is this place valuable to you? I hope it's because I teach you what the Bible says. And then from the teaching of what the Bible says shared, you find comfort with each other. You find hospitality. You find fellow shape with each other. So then you go home and you build an ark there. Your home is a box that you go into to retreat for sanctuary from the world, Okay. So you built the ark, you're building the ark, but what I want you to do now, today, and for the rest of your life is make sure you're building it with the word of God inside. Build an ark, build a home, build a house where the word of God is who you are as a people. It's your identity. Uh, I still wear brands. I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll buy a shirt you will have Under Armour on it and I'll, I'll wear it or whatever. But I've been thinking more and more about how strange it is that they've convinced us to preach for them messages that are not our message. Symbols that are not our symbols so i'm not saying you know wear different clothing i'm saying think about what you put on your walls at home does it preach good news to you it doesn't have to be all dogmatic and and petty it can just be like rejoice you know something simple but but is the word of god in your home do that go build your ark and then with that it's your life too right your body is the box in which this word is really inhabiting you're the temple of the holy spirit now so to go build an ark is to define time and space in your house for you to read the word of god and time and space in your house for your family to speak the word of God together. Then from there, the other place to really look to build an ark is in your neighborhood. To get your neighbors to be people who know each other, care for each other, in the event of a storm or some other event, might watch out for each other, have a neighbor would watch. I mean, we live in Rockford after all, right? So your neighborhood is a place to build an ark. Your town, Rockford, is a place to build an ark. Your county, Winnebago or Boone, is a place to build an ark. What do I mean by that again? Now it's an it's a symbol, this ark. I don't know what your problems are. I know some of them, but not all. I don't know what the solutions you think are important are. And most importantly, I don't know where the zeal of the Holy Spirit in you is making you want to do something about it. But you do. And I want you to take that little fire. I want you to dump gasoline on it. I want you to figure out, what is it about your neighborhood that needs to change for the good of God and country? What is it about your town that needs to change for the good of God and country? What is it about your house that needs to change for the good of God and country? And most importantly, every day, what is it about you that needs to change for God and country? Build an ark. It's a great and powerful, beautiful thing to know that this is not something you have to do in order to get somewhere, because if you don't, it'll be bad. Come to the other side now, stand with Noah. Remember that this isn't you making this up or having maybe a chance. This is God saying, I'm gonna destroy everything except for you. And you're gonna be here through all of that. So when I say do it, Do it, take and eat, this is my body, I baptize you, teach the word. When I say do it, do it, and then no, you can't fail. They can't sink the ship of Christianity, which means they can't sink the ship of this congregation. Not really. They can raise the building to the ground. They can come in and slaughter all of us. We aren't sunk. We aren't sunk. And and the devil, I think, figured this out. He may have forgotten. I don't know. But somewhere along the line, he figured out that the the worst thing he could do is publicly murder a bunch of Christians because what happens afterwards is there's more Christians. So we should perhaps fear less about that happening to us, recognize that if it does happen to us, so what? (laughs) We're alive forever and it's going to work out real good in the end. But then realize also it's probably not going to happen. You want me to tell you what's going to happen? St. Paul, is what's going to happen. We're going to build an ark. We're going to start reading our Bibles at home. We're going to start praying the Psalms in Jesus' name. We're going to find that grace is free. And suddenly, not only are you going to like being here more, which you already do, I know you do, because I watch y'all talk to each other, and I've watched it grow over the last couple of years. But this great kept secret of, of who we are because the word makes us this is not going to stay a secret. For very long. And so the real reality that's going to happen is, while the world outside of these walls is going to get worse and worse. I can't tell you. Food shortages, electricity, aliens. I don't, you know, who are you listening to? I guarantee you whatever happens out here is going to get better and better in here. More and more real, more and more integrity, more and more sincerity, more and more truth you can walk out of and say, that made sense because of what I saw and learned at church or read in the scriptures today. That's what we're after building the ark. All right. Now that is a big lead up. We got three weeks to talk about the story and we're going like straight in Bible study here a little bit. We're going to go through the verses. Uh, we're going to pull out some big key words and dwell on them. Uh, do a little zoology along the way. So Genesis uh, chapter six begins on page five uh, of your pew Bible. And uh, there's a bit of nanny that we really do have to deal with in verses Uh, one through four, but I'm going to put this all under one category. And, And that category is arguments with skeptics about the ancient world, right? So this is when you have to prove that evolution is kind of, doesn't make any sense, right? You're arguing with a skeptic usually by that point. And so you also have then the issue of timelines, how old these guys were. You got the issue of, um, you know, how could a worldwide flood happen? All these big skeptical questions. Uh, And then also throw into that mix this weird text about the sons of God and the sons of man and the Nephilim, these mighty ones of old that there are those out there that would like to convince you these are like demon people, right? So the sons of God are demons. You just let that one sink in for a second, right? The sons of God are demons, you say? That doesn't make sense, okay? But, but this is the argument. The sons of God are the demons, and they go into the, sons of, the daughters of men, that's women, and then they have kids, and they're, those are like the beast creature people, right? And then the flood has to come kind of because of them, right? Now, again, if you want to believe in werewolves, I can't stop you, right? But that's kind of where you're at with that one a little bit. Uh, what really happened was that there was the descendants of Seth who had the gospel, probably written in the constellations of the Zodiac prior. Uh, you know, they told the story with the constellations, uh, and uh, they held the faith for generations. And then you have the sons of Seth, uh, or the sons of man, because they're not sons of God. They don't have faith, uh, and they hold on for generations. And then eventually, uh, the sons of Seth, the Christians, the men, decide they would like to marry some of the pagan women. And if if you read the Old Testament through one time, you'll realize this happens more than once. And it always has the same results. And that is that those who were faithful cease being faithful. The community that was a congregation ceases to be a faithful congregation. And so the sons of God who were the early church for several generations after Seth lose that faith. And that's what brings us down to the days of Noah, where again, Noah is like the only one left, he and his wife. No one else believes, or if they do, they're going to die before the 100 years leading up to the flood takes place. All right, so then let's look then at that part, though. Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 6, where the Lord Jesus, God the Father, uh, the Trinity, he sees that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, we can use this to talk about original sin and how the carnal nature that you have is only evil continually in its desires. Okay? This is tricky for Lutherans because we like to think of sin as something we can stop doing. <laughs> but, but, but original sin is not something you do or stop doing. It's an impulse, it's an inclination, it's a, it's a direction, right? And it is only evil continually. You can just hear that as it is always selfish continually. I think it kind of makes sense. Oh yeah, everyone is selfish all the time, right? Unless the word of God comes and teaches them something different, the law can command you to share and the gospel of course awakens you to the good of giving. But that isn't what man does from birth by nature. And so once they've rejected the word of God in the pre-flood world, the intention of man's heart, evil all the time, God sees this and it begins to be what they actually have happening. That's a different verse, So I'm going to hold on to that for a moment. Um, first, we just see God has this bit of regret, verse 6, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That word regret there um, is sometimes translated as repent or relent. Uh, it's, it is the word for repentance that is normally used. It is also the word for like when God does not destroy Nineveh, right? Jonah goes and preaches and then they repent and God then relents of his wrath against Nineveh. He repents from destroying the city. Um, This is kind of a problem for we Greek thinkers. You're a Greek thinker as an English speaker. Uh, We've inherited thoughts about God that are not biblical, but are more as if God was just really big and really far away. Like you can't ever get to him. He's so far off. You can't even imagine him. He's more of an idea, but he's really there, right? Um, uh, For For that world, God can't be sorry. God can't really have feelings. God doesn't get moved by man. And for many people, then, their idea of God, he also doesn't get involved in man's life very much, right? Historically, this is called deism by American philosophy. But in any case, the point here is that our God is one who has the capacity to change his mind. You just have to believe that. How can God change his mind? He says he can. (laughs) That's how, right? And the way he does this at times is is like this. He he regrets something. But now the regret there carries way too much connotation in English. It's kind of like a bad memory is my regret. This is a present thing that's taking place for God. He looks at the evil, and I love the root of the Hebrew here. The word just literally means takes a deep, slow breath. everything that's going on, he just says, stop. I'm going to do something about this. That's that's what he did, right? Rather than go along with it all, he created space for himself to take care of the problem. It doesn't mean, you know, this kind of like he's in there at the confessional needing forgiveness or something, right? Um, he, He changed his mind with a breath. Right, And let me suggest to you, this is a powerful concept. You see, what does God do when things are getting out of control? Takes a deep breath. What should you do when it's getting out of control? Try it sometime. I mean, not only Christians know this, right? Like Christians don't know this. Pagans know this. Take a deep breath. It fills you with spirit. Not Holy Spirit. It's your spirit. Yeah? Uh, so in any case, God resolves to take a new approach. Right. That, that's what is going on in that verse. He resolves to getting involved so that Jesus, excuse me, the Lord said, Jesus said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And here we get our first taste of the taxonomy, Okay, the animals, animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What I want you to see there is that a primary Three categories, archetypes, for animals in Hebrew thought are animals, that's the first kind of animal, is the animal, to be distinguished from the creeping thing. Because those aren't animals, those are creeping things. And to be distinguished from the birds. Because birds aren't animals either. They live in heaven. Animals live on the earth. Birds live in heaven? Well, yeah, they fly in heaven all the time. Like the stars. You know. That's Hebrew Talk. All right? It's just the way they saw the world. I find it, what's the right word? Childishly relieving. It's so simple. It's just so simple. So hopefully I'll give you some more animal stuff further. But you see it right there in the text that when God says, bring animals, he, he has a different way of thinking about it than we do. Which gets to that whole, the skeptic, you can't fit all the animals on the boat thing. Like, dude, you don't even know what animals are. You think it's like reptiles. Like that's not what we're talking about. I mean, there, there are animals that are reptiles, but okay, we'll get there. Um, moving forward. Uh don't miss that in verse 8, then, after he says he's gonna destroy everything, that Noah finds it says favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the word grace. That's the New Testament style word grace. Grace alone, free gift, not deserved. He didn't earn it. it wasn't because of how good he was, without works. God's decision, elected from of old, predestination, all of that grace. Yeah. Noah found grace. Why is that important? Well, in a moment, it's going to tell us that he was righteous and perfect. And so if you're too dumb to read the verse before and see that it's about grace first, and then he's righteous and perfect after he has grace, right? then you're going to think that Noah was saved because of how good he was. And you're going to wonder why Genesis teaches a different gospel than the gospel of Galatians. Huh? You follow me on that? So you got to cling on to this grace here. The whole thing from the start is, even Noah didn't deserve to get saved from the flood. He was the last Christian with his wife and sons. That didn't make him worthy of being saved by his works. It meant he still believed there was going to be a son who would be born who would end the evil. That's what he believed. So from there, verse 9, defining Noah's life, uh, got the generations of Noah. Uh, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Tons in this little section. That word generation is two different words. You see it there as one word. It shows up twice. It's two different words. So the first time, these are the generations of Noah. What that means is this is a paragraph about Noah's sons. That's what it means. This is a paragraph about Noah's sons. And by the end of it, you see that. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, there they are, right? Just like the previous sections. The other word, where he is blameless in his generation, that's about his neighbors, the people that are alive when he's alive. Not his descendants, right? But, But all those who are in the same epoch as him. And so Noah is righteous and blameless among them. Now, remember, the world is corrupt beyond imagination at this point, and there aren't any Christians left. So, I mean, who knows how actually great a guy Noah was. He might have been a real jerk, had trouble with his tongue, had fits of rage, went off and stormed around, and people were afraid to approach him. Could have been. I don't know. I'm sure he was striving to be a good man. I don't think he wanted to be evil, right? But he was, amongst his generation, completely good comparatively. And he was righteous, that is accurate, that is on mark comparatively. And then more, though miss, righteousness in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is about justification by grace through faith almost all the time. So when it says he was righteous, it says he's a believer. And then that bit about being perfect or whole is the word, W-H-O-L-E is way better than perfect, whole. You know, like a pie that hasn't been cut yet, right? Uh, It's not perfect. It didn't need to become perfect. It it was whole the moment you made it. And then you took away from it, right? So Noah has nothing taken away from him. Um, That is to say, he has a sincere faith. He believes in what he has. The word he's been given, he believes it. And you're going to see this by his reaction. He builds the boat. He builds the boat. All right, so Noah is, he is accurate and he is whole because he stands in grace because he's been given these things. Whereas the rest of the world, not so great. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And God saw that the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, so that that word corrupt shows up several times there. And it's it's kind of a unique one. It's not as common as some of these other words that I've been talking about. Um, but it is common enough that it still exists today in Arabic and is used uh, in Arabic uh, as the name of a pretty famous organization that uh, desires Palestinian independence. You know, let's leave Palestinian independence. I, I, don't, I don't care about the argument. The point is that the name of Hamas uh, is the word Hamas, uh, which is the word corruption here, at least historically. Now, they've turned it around i think and it's more of like a warlike word it's more about uh, attacking uh corrupting the other right hamas is supposed to go against the great satan and tear it down but nonetheless right so the word for which the world was flooded now does exist as the the banner and mark of of an islamic jihadist group kind of fascinating one-to-one i think right um so that's there but then what is this corruption right um the idea is cruelty here. It's not destruction. It's not quite decay. It's cruelty. The way Paul, I think, says this, you know, the love of many will grow cold. Right. But There is no pity or mercy for those who have need. Um, I uh, was driving this week, and I saw a young man down off of Central, and um, I think I was near Riverside, but it might have been Auburn. You know, we have a number of panhandlers in town and uh, I hadn't seen this this guy before. He was young, he was in his 20s and he was shoddily dressed and looked kind of dirty um, and he had a really terrible sign. I mean, you know, some of these people, they get their signs together, they know what they're doing. His sign was really terrible. It just said food on it. Anyway, I, I talked to him for a bit. I gave him three bucks in the Sons of Solomon packet. Why am I sharing this with you? Um, My heart bled for that man. I've been thinking about him every day since. I went back, tried to find him a couple days later with one of our food packets. He wasn't there. I'll look again. I don't know. The wind takes people where the wind takes people. My point in this is that you know Noah lived in a time where there wasn't anyone who felt that way about anyone. What a horrible, horrible place it got. I was saying to Meredith, I mean, this has been thinking about this sermon has been on my mind all week. It's been a lot to ponder. I'm excited. It's powerful. It's moved me. Um, I was saying to Meredith uh, how one of the things we got we got to get out of this is how good we have it right now. That we are not surrounded by the enemy the way that Noah was. We do not have corruption flooding the earth the way that Noah did because there's still way more than 7,000 actual Christians on this planet. And they each have the Holy Spirit of God in them, inspiring them to have a conscience that wants to love their neighbors. So we we have a lot on our side. And then God, the king, reigns, right, on on top of all of this. So to see in this um, confidence and hope here, especially as we hear this promise that he makes in verse 18, that is for you too now. This is like the prototype or the archetype of the promise. The promise came as, Eve, you will bear a son and he will slay the dragon. But now here it comes this way. It's going to keep coming all the way down to take and eat, all the way down to I wash you in my name. It's what this text means. Baptism is what this text means. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. Uh, I shall establish my covenant you with you, and I'll put you inside of the box. I'm going to keep you safe. That is again the washing of regeneration. That baptism is promises you. That's what he's doing to you. That he's beginning the good work in you. That he's going to bring it to completion. That it is a way of grace. That it is a way of truth and life that cannot be taken from you. Huh? And then from there, the Lord's Supper is there to feed you on the way. But every week, once more, as you doubt, he says, ah, I've got you. I have an alliance with you. I've called you by name. You are mine. This word covenant here is a massive word throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's the word bereith, which in a beautiful pun is related to the word blessing. We can't even do that in English. Can you imagine a contract and blessing being the same word? How often is that? I guess marriage, right? Uh, but how often is it a blessing? Usually it's, you know, it's like debt. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the word is is related to blessing. And then um, I'm going to lose my thought for a sec, so I'm going to dance over to the actual note. Uh, it, it is also uh, tied to the word alliance. All right. So it's not just a covenant like as in I have to pay off my car, I got a mortgage, I have a contract, I have a phone contract, right? It's not just that. It's it's more like um, I have an alliance with you now. My company is going to buy stuff from your company. Your company is going to buy stuff from my company. And so we're not going to get put out of business by that other company, right? God comes along and he says, I'm going to do that to you. The archetype, is Noah Noah's the picture of it but baptism is the reality Lord's Supper is the reality right and this blessing is now yours uh, let's look at uh, verse 22 where it says uh, Noah did this he did all that God commanded him um, that word commanded is pretty big too that's one of the first places that word shows up in the Old Testament and that's the Ten Commandment word right You get into like Psalm 119, he's like, I love your precepts. I love your statutes. I love your commandments. That Psalm is about all the different words that develop for saying the word of God in Hebrew over the course of Torah and the histories. But one of the first ones is commandments, right? And commandment or command isn't like a rule. And we think of the Ten Commandments as a list of rules, and they serve that way. But that's not what the word itself means. And I'm going to dance down to this card here for this one, too, uh, just to be double-checking, if I can. Nope, I'm not. Don't have it. Uh, what I, I can say it, though, from memory, and that is this, that it's not about doing something, so much as the force of the words giving you no choice but to do something, right? Absolutely. You can rebel against a commandment. It's possible. But the idea is that it's said, and you're like, okay, because there was never an option to turn down a command, right? Like, Or, or think military for a second, right? Uh, you're the captain. You got a soldier. You say, go over there. You don't have to say, I command you. You just said, go over there because you're in command. That's the idea of this word. God commanded him. This is a prophecy. This is a promise. This is an alliance. This is an oath that God is taking. And again, I want you to take all of that and realize it's there to tell you he means it for you too today. That no matter what storm you face, no matter what evil is coming upon the world, he intends for you to build an ark in alliance with him and it begins with your body in Christ and goes out to every ripple effect that you can possibly reach to the farthest extents of human race. As far as you want to go, you ask, can I go? But he has guaranteed you your ark's going through the flood. All right. He has made that alliance. All right, a couple more things here. we got about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about the animals again. Uh, So in chapter seven, verses one to five, he tells Noah, you know, take your household in. I've seen your righteous, verse two, uh, take seven pairs of the clean animals. That means sacrificially clean. So we know animal sacrifices for God already exist before Mount Sinai from that verse. Um, uh, The male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. So, you know, a fascinating little thing. We live in a culture that doesn't know if man and woman really exist and and so forth. I wonder when it will go down to dog breeding and and cattle herding and and where we'll have to apply the trans ideology to to making the animals grow and how that'll go. And I say this tongue-in-cheek because, really, it demonstrates the complete lunacy. It's not a weird thing that God's like, okay, Get on a boat and take two animals with you. But since you're prejudiced and sexist, make it a male and a female. Like, like, no, no, no. It's, it's about how creation works. Right? It's so obvious. But because of our times, I have to say it. I think you know it, right? But we need to hear it said. Because a lot of other people are saying the opposite. The male and female don't exist. So obviously, animals exist in male and female to procreate and create more animals. So there's that. There's the seven that are clean. There's are sacrificial. Why seven? Seven's a holy number. We're not going to spend a lot of time on numbers today. There's a whole field of numbers that we can apply to this story. Seven being the holy number. But imagine you're going to get off the ark and you got to make some sacrifices. And so, well, if you just take two, oops, that one's dead, right? So take seven. That gives you five for sacrifices before the next round of babies are born. So that's the idea there. But then two by two of all the ones that are not clean for sacrifice. And then seven pairs of the birds. They're fragile, you know. We have three parakeets. I'm sorry. We have two parakeets. And guess what? The third parakeet was bought last and died first. They're fragile. You ever have a goldfish? Same kind of problem, right? So it takes seven pairs of the birds because some are going to die, right? male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face of the earth. For seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, in seven days, I should say. And every living thing that I have made will be blotted out from the face of the ground. So so all the animals. All right. So we're going to tangent back into this kind of Hebrew animal taxonomy thing. Taxonomy is the study of the inside of the animal, their, their internal workings. And what I want to do with this is kind of also address that um, the flood is impossible. The boat is impossible. Couldn't ever fit all the animals on the boat. Kind of nonsense that anyone in, you know, ages 12 to 18 who hates Jesus finds on the internet and then repeats like it's smart. Right. And so um, I want to address that with this idea of Hebrew zoology and their kinds Right? We did this with a moment ago with the creeping things and the animals, <laughs> which is the word kaya, uh, wild animals, I think. Um, and then uh, with the uh, uh, creeping things, animals, and birds that were there. We're just going to go away from the text, and I'm going to give you the top of the pyramid of Hebrew animalia. How do they study animals? Because it's, it's, it's enlightening to see how they saw it. And um, they have uh, two primary types of what we think of as animals, moving beasts, and these two types of animals, their kingdoms, if you want to think of them that way, are the Kaya and the Bahamut, which if you've read Job, you've heard the word Bahamut before, and someone probably told you it's a dinosaur, and I guess it could be, but it's also just the word domestic animal. That's Bahamut. Domestic animal, although it's better than that because Hebrew is so literal. It doesn't mean domestic animal. It means processed material, right? Hey, honey, go get me the cow. I mean, honey, get me the processed material. Right? They saw domestic animals as substantially different from wild animals. That's kaya, the wild animals. Uh, why? I don't know. They had been processed into human animals. Relationship that could be what they are. If they, they become processed, or it could be that ruminants are pretty good for you to eat. They process the grass and they give you a very good good meal, right? So the the, the standard um, flock animals are good food, right? So you have that Bahamut processed material, and then you have the Kaya, the wild animals. Now, what's really useful about that alone is you can see that whereas American or or Western Latin study of animals is all about this one's like that one in their body shape. And so they're related to each other. And then there's subsets of that. Hebrew goes at it not about their body shape, but in these three things. Where do they live? Um, What does their outside look like? Not their inside. Their outside look like, you know, sharks or fish, that kind of thing. Um, And most importantly, what's their relationship to man? And a good example of everything I just said is that in Hebrew zoology, a pig and a wild boar are not the same kind of animal. The pig is, Bahamut is domestic, and the wild boar is, is kaya, it's wild. Now, does that mean that Noah took two different types of pig on the boat. I don't know. It means we're dealing with categories we don't really understand. And we should trust that when God said two by two and seven and Noah was like, I got the box, it worked out. We don't have to figure out which ones were on and which ones were off. Uh, now, just for fun of it, I want to give you a couple more because I think this way of thinking about animals, it expands the mind that always gives a little room for wisdom. So those wild animals, the kaya, and uh, that word, Like the Bahamut means processed material. Kaya just means possessing life, living things. The living animals, the wild animals, they have three kinds. Their three kinds of wild animals are wild land land animals, wild field animals, and wild wood animals. But what that means won't be what you would think. (laughs) So uh, by land animals, uh, they mean like lions, leopards, bears, other large, but usually predatory animals. Those are, those are the wild of the land. And then the wild of the field, that's like the deer, right? Um, uh, herbivores that are out in the field eating. That's the animals of the field. And then the animals of the wood, which you'd think there'd be deer in the wood. There are, right? Um, animals of the wood are may, mainly small predators that come out at night. Those are the, the animals of the woods. It's just such a different way of looking at life, right? And then they have a fourth category, and this is my favorite one. is the evil animals. But these categories overlap. So something that is an animal of the land can also be an evil animal, right? So that's where, you know, which ones did Noah take? I don't know. But I know he took the five main evil animals on the boat, and they are the wolf, the lion, the bear, the snake, and the leopard. Uh, three of those become... Uh, Beasts in the book of Daniel, not accidentally. Uh, They are the evil animals. Why are they evil? Dangerous. Wolf, lion, bear, snake, leopard. The most important thing in Hebrew, Hebrew taxonomy is how is it related to man, right? So evil animals. Then you have these creeping things. Last comment on it, the creeping things isn't just the bugs. Mice are creeping things. Lizards are creeping things. I mean, really, is it a creeping thing? Does it creep? That's a creeping thing. That's how childlike the entire language is, right? So so if you're going to argue about how he did it, you're just going to waste your time running into a world you can't imagine. So instead, our goal here is to believe that it was done. And it was done by grace, through faith, in alliance and covenantal promises of which you are the ultimate recipient of, not alone, but with me and us together here and now. We're at 45 minutes. I still got notes up here. We haven't talked about the number seven, the number 40, the windows of heaven. I don't know if we'll get to it next week, but this is the beautiful thing about the Bible too. It's always there. There's always more. What I want today is to call you to action in this way. I want you to ask yourself, what ark am I supposed to build? I think you know, if you ask yourself, you go back to your home, what ark am I supposed to build in my home? I think you'll come up with something. And if you ask yourself at your work, your office space, what am I supposed to do in here to build an ark, to make this place a place where good is kept and where evil is kept away? I think you'll come up with some solutions. You ask about your neighborhood. You ask about the pro-life movement. There's lots of places to build arcs. All I want is for you to to believe, really, that God wants you to build one and that it's going to be a grand adventure. It's a gift, this life we have. It's not a chore. We're awake now, right? We're awake. In the name of Jesus, amen.